Thank you, David, for that introduction. You certainly have done your homework, <laughs> no doubt. Um, I would like to thank Jessica and David for inviting me tonight, and uh, uh, Father Voidis, of course, uh, uh, who is uh, a, a supporter and certainly mentioned uh, my name to them. And I, I recalled uh, David, I don't recall meeting Jessica, but I, I did meet David at, uh, at St. Mary's in uh, Silva when we did a divine liturgy there. So I was uh, happy to, to make re reacquaint uh, because Jessica's been handling all the information and, and now I, I see David as well. Um, my, my talk tonight will be on uh, essentially the Desert Fathers and living a holy life and a desert mother or sister, however you would uh, like to characterize her. Um, I'm going to talk to you tonight about what it means to live as a true disciple of Jesus Christ and how a deeper understanding of scripture and authentic Catholic tradition helps us to do this. I'm going to begin my talk with a short reflection on the temptation of Jesus in the desert, which uh, we find in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, uh, which I'm sure you've read or have uh, heard many times over the years. In this passage, Satan first tempts Jesus, hungry, after fasting 40 days, with the thought of using his power as the Son of God to transform stones into loaves of bread. Our Lord rejects this temptation of the flesh. In the second temptation, Satan suggests that our Lord throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple and to let angels prevent his falling to death. Surely this would be seen by others and the Lord perhaps would be worshipped for this miracle. But our Lord rejects this act of self-aggrandizement. He rejects the world and accepts the poverty of his human nature before God. He accepts, therefore, his mission as God-man and Savior who must die as a man on the cross. In the third temptation, Satan takes him to a high mountain overlooking all the kingdoms of the world in their glory and says Satan says he will give them to our Lord if our Lord will only worship him. Our Lord rejects this temptation of power, worldly glory and prideful denial of God with the words be gone Satan and a paraphrase of the first commandment. Our Lord therefore has resisted some theologians say temptations of the flesh, the world and Satan. Others say he has rejected three loves, the love of pleasure, the love of glory, and the love of money. From the time of the church fathers, we are told that in this passage, our Lord shows us how we are expected to live our lives and how we are expected to behave. This passage is also considered a principal source for the three monastic vows, poverty, chastity, and obedience. Christians who know of these vows often do not see them as applying to their own lives. This perhaps is because in the Western Church, the spirituality of the monk has been considered a thing apart. In the Eastern Churches, however, this is not so. The Orthodox theologian Paul F. Dokomoff speaks of the significance of these vows in this way. Poverty frees us from material things chastity from carnal, and obedience from self-idolatry. Every Christian should aspire to such freedom. Jesus of Dokomoff writes, illustrates these vows in the temptation passage as the poor one, the pure one, 
and the obedient one. The church fathers, he says, further consider this scripture passage to, con uh, to contain the ultimate words, the ultimate words of the Bible. If they are the ultimate words of scripture, then everyone who reads them or hears them should pay very close attention to them. And that, in fact, is what the church fathers emphasize. The church, East and West, stress, stress, the church fathers, East and West, stress that scripture does indeed speak to everyone, priest, monk, religious, and layperson alike. When Christ orders us to follow the narrow path, he addresses himself to all. The monastics and the layperson must attain the same heights. That's what Paul Evdokimov writes. I am convinced that Pope St. John Paul II emphasizes the need for the church to breathe with two lungs to spur Christians, East and West, to live their lives fully committed to the Christ we encounter in Scripture, understood in different, different but equally valid ways by each. It follows, therefore, that poverty, chastity, and obedience illustrated by our Lord are virtues not just for the monk, but all Christians, East and West. Building on the work of his predecessor, Pope Benedict XVI speaks of our knowing intimately the lives and works of the Church Fathers, in addition to deepening our knowledge of Scripture. This is a quotation from him coming up. In Verbum Domine, he speaks of the importance of our knowing Scripture with a reference to this threefold commitment, poverty, chastity, and obedience. And now we have Benedict. The Word of God makes us change our concept of realism. The realist is the one who recognizes in the Word of God the foundation of all things. This realism is particularly needed in our own times, when many things in which we trust for building our lives, things in which we are tempted to put our hopes, prove ephemeral. Possessions, pleasure, and power show themselves sooner or later to be incapable of fulfilling the deepest yearning of the human heart. In building our lives, we need solid foundations which will endure when, when human certainties fail. Truly, since forever our Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens, and faithfulness of the Lord endures to all generations. Whoever builds on this word builds the house of his life on rock. Again, that's Pope Benedict from Verbum, Verbum Domini. Building on the Word of God means that we build our life on Christ and so on the virtues of poverty, chastity, and obedience. I'm going to talk tonight about two saints and a monk of the early church who can assist in building us in building such a house. Saint Antony, who lived 251 to 356, the Egyptian monk and father of monasticism. Saint Mary of Egypt, whose dates are 344 to 421, or perhaps her death date given, but not her birth as 530. There's a dispute through scholars and theologians about her dates. A great athlete of Christ who lived a life of repentance in the desert. And Evagrius Ponticus, 345 to 399, a monk whose writings teach us how to fight the demons that tempt us and work to pull us away from Christ. 
We know of St. Antony through the biography written by another great saint, St. Athanasius the Great, who also is called the father of orthodoxy, as in right doctrine or right belief and not the Orthodox Church. Peter H. Gorg writes that St. Athanasius did not base his biography of St. Antony on pious legends or hearsay. The authorship of the saintly Bishop Athanasius, he says, can be accepted without a doubt, and he was able to rely on his own meetings and conversations with Antony. Athanasius tells us that Antony was born in Egypt in about the year 251. His parents were Christian, and they raised their children in the faith. Although Anthony disliked school, there's hope for all of us, he loved his parents and was obedient to them. I also disliked school. That's why I spent so many years in graduate school. Uh, they attended church, and so he attended with them. They demanded that he be an attentive in church, and so he was, obeying his parents. St. Athanasius writes, He paid attention to the lessons that were read and carefully kept in his heart the profit he gleaned from them. Anthony's parents died when he was about 18 or 20, so he was left with the care of his sister. About six months after the death of his parents, Antony was on the way to church one day and was reflecting on how the disciples left everything behind to follow our Lord. The gospel he heard at church that day was about our Lord's telling the rich man to sell everything and to follow him. The rich man did not, but Antony, greatly moved by Matthew 19:21, sold all he had except for a small amount he held back for his sister. Soon after, however, on another day at church, Matthew 6:34 touched his heart. Be solicitous for tomorrow. So he gave up what he had retained for his sister, placed her with placed his sister with a group of virgins, nuns at the time, and went off to live a life as an ascetic. Antony began then to live life as a true ascetic, not far from his home. He worked at manual labor for sustenance. He prayed constantly, having learnt that we pray in private without seas, Athanasius writes. He had no books, not even a Bible. He had paid such close attention to gospel readings at church that he retained them in memory. And so the scripture he retained in memory nourished him. He visited and observed other pious men. And Athanasius writes, and this is a good quote from Athanasius, uh, he made it his endeavor to learn for his own benefit just how each was superior to him in zeal and ascetic practice. He observed the graciousness of one, the earnestness at prayer of another, studied the even temper of one, the kind-heartedness of another, fixed his attention on the vigils kept by one and on the studies pursued by another, admired one for his patient endurance, another for his fasting and sleeping on the ground, watched closely this man's meekness and the forbearance shown by another, and in one and all alike, he marked especially devotion to Christ and the love they had for one another. Antony would eventually go deeper into the desert to live, and others would follow him. But his life retained the same structure. The faith he received from his parents was greater than the money and possessions he received. 
in their home life, they gave him the foundation on which he would build his life as a monk in the desert. Through the word of God that worked in his, on his heart, he became a man of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And despite the many trials he faced in the desert, the assault of demons, he nourished this life with his commitment to prayer, fasting, and vigils. We see in the completion of his life a man who is a great ascetic, but he began his life very much like each of us as a member of a family. Through the grace of God, his family was one that ensured that he learned the true faith. St. Mary of Egypt also went to the desert as a, and became a great ascetic. But unlike Antony, who was obedient to her parents, Mary was willful and disobedient. Through her disobedience, she lost her life. But our Lord found this lost sheep and called her home. And the icon I have of her, her face is weathered, her hair gray, her body gaunt, her legs and arms like sticks. She wears nothing but a cloak. The Jordan River flows behind her, while Saint Sosimus, the priest who received the gift of her story, gives her the gift of the Eucharist, for which she begged. For Orthodox and Catholics of both East and West, she is the patron saint of penitence. She is also the patron saint of chastity and for those who suffer from sexual temptations, which makes her the perfect saint for our flesh-addicted times. We know of her story through Saint Suzemus, who lived 460 to 560, who told it to the monks at his monastery. They passed on the story orally for years until it was written down by Saint Sophronius, who lived 634 to 638, to ensure its preservation. Scholars suggest two other possible sources for her story. In one, Mary is a hermit living in a cave encountered by a monk. She tells him that she departed for the desert to avoid being on occasion, an occasion for sexual temptation for men. She had lived 18 years in the desert on a jar of water and a basket of loaves. She was found dead by the monk when he returned to visit her a second time, and he buried her in the cave. The other story recounts the same reason for her living in the desert, but says she lived for 17 years on a basket of vegetables. In St. Sophronius' story of St. Mary of Egypt, she was once a woman with a voracious sexual appetite who repented for her promiscuity by spending 47 years naked in the desert, 30 more than the 17 she spent in depravity. After spending 53 years in a monastery in Palestine, Suzema struggles with the thought that he has surpassed all the monks in his aesthetic practice. No one there, he believes, can teach him anything else. In a vision, he is instructed to go to a monastery by the Jordan. Once there, Zosimus finds a home among monks. Quote, there he saw elders, glorious in active life and contemplation, fervent in spirit, toiling towards the Lord. Their singing was unceasing, their vigil all night. Work was always in their hands and psalms on their lips. During his time, oh, sorry, 
I skipped the line. For the Lenten fast, the monks leave the monastery and cross the Jordan to spend time alone in the desert until Palm Sunday. During his time in the desert, Suzima sees what he believes is an apparition. He pursues it, but it runs from him until he breaks down in tears by the bed of a dried up stream. There the apparition reveals herself to be a naked and sinful. She still calls herself a sinful woman. She does not wish him to see her body, so she requests his cloak to cover herself. He is startled because the woman addresses him by name. When she requests his priestly blessing, he is filled with dread and he tells her that she has nearly died to the world and has greater spiritual gifts. In, a great, in, an, in an act of great humility, the formerly prideful monk die, uh, the, the, the formerly prideful monk and priests asks her to bless him. She humbly complies out of obedience. He begs her to tell him her story because he believes God has led him to the desert for this purpose. So she reveals that at the age of 12, at the age of 12, like many young girls today, unfortunately in many large cities and probably even here in North Carolina, she left her parents and ran off to the big city, Alexandria, where she quickly lost her virginity and without restraint and insatiably, it's written, I gave myself up to lust. One year, she saw many Libyans and Egyptians heading to ships bound for Jerusalem, the feast of the elevation of the cross. She boarded one of the ships, paying her way with her body, paying her way to go with these men on the way to pilgrimage with her body. On land before the feast, she leads many more on pilgrimage astray. I was not satisfied, quote, with the young men whom I had at sea and who helped my journey. I seduced many others. The holy day of the elevation of the cross came, and I was still chasing, hunting young men. On the day of the feast, she tries to enter the church, but a force prevents her. She tries again and again until she understands why she cannot enter. Weeping. She prays before an icon of the Holy Mother of God, the Virgin, and promises that once she sees the cross of Christ, she will repent for her sins and renounce the world. The church is open to her, and inside she hears a voice that tells her she will find great peace on the other side of the Jordan. Each Lent, her story is read by Orthodox and Eastern Catholics at morning prayer on Thursday of the fifth week of Lent. And it's quite long. We, we do the whole thing on that day. It's a long morning prayer. Uh, worth it for her story. Her story is a great reminder of what it means to truly feel sorrow for our sins and the great gift that comes from giving all to Christ. She is the perfect saint for our times. Many have fallen to sexual temptation St. Mary of Egypt teaches us what is required if we are to return to faith and to purity of heart and purity of spirit. We must hear the voice of God when he calls us to return. We must recognize our sin and we must repent. 
We may not have the deep conversion that Mary had and so spend a life of repentance in the desert as she did, but we are called to repent no matter our state in life. God showed Mary her path. We must be open to our own. Change of heart cannot happen without hard work. Many Christians seem to miss this point, just as the people of Israel missed it throughout the history recorded in the Old Testament. Time and again, the Lord tells us to keep his covenant and to be mindful of the commandments, of his commandments to do them, as Psalm 102 reminds us. Too often, though, we do not remember the commandments, so how can we keep them? Too often we want to leave it to the Lord to act, forgetting that we must reciprocate, that we must act for the Lord. Too often we plead ignorance or simply blame others, a much easier course of action than making the hard climb up the inner mountain. Many, many make a great effort to change their lives in every way except in their faith. Some even seem committed to avoiding the hard work it takes to live the Christian life authentically. When we read the Church Fathers, we find that whether married, monk, or hermit, they took to heart the words of St. Paul about enduring to the end, winning the race. They made a commitment in their own way to living their lives as ascetics, athletes for Christ. And they understood clearly that you cannot run a race, let alone win it, if you do not train. No one understood this better than the fourth century Egyptian monk and writer Evagrius Ponticus, who defined and elucidated the eight kinds of evil thoughts that cause us to stumble in the race to heaven. Evagrius was born in 345 in Pontus on the Black Sea in what is now Turkey, Greek, uh, at that time, not far from the family home of St. Basil the Great. St. Basil ordained Evagrius as a lector. In 379, St. Gregory the Theologian ordained him as a deacon. He served Gregory as an archdeacon in Constantinople and assisted him at the Second Ecumenical Council. When Gregory retired as bishop to return home so he could live a contemplative life, his successor, Bishop Nectarius kept Evagrius on uh, as an archdeacon. Under Nectarius, Evagrius gained a reputation as a defender of the theology of saints Basil and Gregory and a great opponent of heresy. Yet in Constantinople, Evagrius fell prey to his success. His penchant for meditation, quiet, and prayer reign, waned. He grew careless worldly and delicate. He began an adulterous affair with a rich man's wife. During the course of the affair, he had a dream in which he promised to leave Constantinople to save his soul. His monastic life begins at this time, and it grows to the point of his living a most austere life, living on small amounts of bread and oil. This is a practice he will Modif not, uh, he will not modify uh, until the last few years of his life. His years as a monk were not without great struggle. He, the, he underwent the most severe trials against chastity 
and met them with heroic efforts, such as passing the night exposed to the winter cold, standing in a well. Three years before he died, Evagrius told his brother monks that he was no longer troubled by disordered passions or thoughts. Evagrius died when he was 55 in 399 on the Feast of the Epiphany. He knew he was dying, and so he asked to be taken to the church. There's a quote, the last thing we learn of Evagrius that he was asked to be taken to the church for the feast so that he could participate in the mysteries. He received Holy Communion there and died peacefully in the Lord. He died there in the church after receiving Holy Communion. Wow. What a way to go. <laughs> he is not a saint um, because of some of his writings that, that uh, he's been redeemed by the church, so, but a few of his writings got a little off at one point. But these are, these are gold. Um, but he struggled heroically to live a saintly life. He was uh, a brilliant thinker, a brilliant writer, and he has left us a great body of work that can help us in our own struggles. The Practicus, the best known work of his, is a concise book of only 30 pages and 100 short chapters of about a paragraph, sometimes longer, in length. The book was originally written for monks, but it has attracted readers throughout the centuries who seek to learn about how to live a disciplined and holy life, how to live against the passions. In the Practicus, Evagoras defines the eight evil thoughts as gluttony, impurity, avarice, sadness, anger, acedia, vainglory, and pride. Of those three, uh, it, it's, uh, it's uh, vainglory and, uh, let's say, gluttony, gluttony, uh, vainglory, and there's a third one of those, uh, avarice. Those are the three that he thinks are the most, uh, uh, you know, the foundational sins, basically because they lead to others. So you'd be surprised to realize gluttony, which deals with food, for instance, uh, sexual sins are a sin of gluttony, sin of gluttony. Avarice, the desire for greed and such. Vainglory is the, is the desire for the approval of human beings. So those three are foundational is what he teaches. Um, later, the West, these become essentially, this is where the seven deadly sins later come from when St. Gregory the Great uh, essentially codifies them. He also offers advice about how to work against these eight evil thoughts and the demons who stir them up. And here's a quotation, a good quotation from uh, Evagoras. Do not give yourself over to your angry thoughts so as to fight in your mind with the one who has vexed you. How many of us have been there? Nor again to thoughts of fornication, imagining the pleasures vividly. This, the one darkens the soul, the other invites to the burning of the patient, passions. And that's in some ways he's really speaking about pornography there when he speaks about giving over to those, uh, the, the pleasures vividly as well. Both cause your mind to be defiled, and while you indulge these fancies at the time of prayer, and do, thus do not offer pure prayer to God, the demon of acedia uh, falls upon you without delay, snatches away the soul as if it were a fawn. CD has many different definitions, but essentially uh, sadness, despondency is one way to think of it, but really it is, what CD really gets to is it's, it's the effort to prevent you from 
literally having a relationship with God. This is why the, the writer that I'll mention at the end, uh, 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 Father Nault, says it's, it's the great sin of our times, acedia, because it prevents us from having a relationship with God. Secular world does not have a relationship with God. We cannot decide whether or not we will be attacked by the eight evil thoughts, he writes, but it is up to us to decide if they linger. There's where we have to be active within us or not, and whether or not they stir up our passions. On our way to heaven, Evagrius helps us to know the true obstacles to our attaining the peace of Christ in this life and the next. The three Christians I have spoken about tonight all lived a heroic life. Each answered the call to our Lord to follow me and did so in a unique way. Each today serves as a model of heroic virtue. Another heroic figure can be found in the way of a pilgrim, a classic of Eastern Christian spirituality that recounts the story of a humble believer known only as the pilgrim, who initially sets off on a journey across Russia in search of a teacher who can help him understand St. Paul's instruction to pray without ceasing, to pray without ceasing. We often think that conversion occurs in a blinding light, we seem to think that it always occurs when we're going about our daily business and we're struck blind like Paul. True, some are blinded like Paul, but there is more to his story. The seed for Paul's conversion could have been planted in his heart the day he witnessed the murder of the deacon Stephen. After he was blinded by a vision of our Lord on the road to Damascus, he remained in darkness three days his time in the tomb before he is spiritually resurrected. He regains his sight only after he is baptized and catechized by Ananias. Years later, he still struggles with, he tells us, thorns. The pilgrim's allegorical story teaches us a similar lesson. Already a prayerful man, his blinding moment comes through hearing scripture. At Divine Liturgy, what we call in the East Mass, one Sunday he hears 1 Thessalonians 5.17, which directs us to pray without ceasing. This verse especially fixed itself in my mind, he says. After liturgy, he reads more biblical passages about unceasing prayer. Then he begins to read sermons. He's disappointed because all concern prayer in general. It's at this point that he decides to seek a God guide with God's help. I sounded a little New England there, God. Like my, my mother was a voice coming through. Uh, he wanders a long time, he says, before he reaches a monastery where the abbot gives him some direction, but not the answer he seeks. So he wanders some more. Eventually, he encounters a Strats, Russian holy man's spiritual director, uh, father, spiritual father, who teaches him the Jesus prayer, gives him a chotki to help him keep track of his prayers, and reads a passage to him uh, about the Jesus prayer from the Philokalia, a collection of spiritual writing. This is a chotki, a uh, prayer rope, in case you didn't know. You may know. Uh, the pilgrim prays until his tongue, jaws, left hand, wrist, an elbow ache, yet he continues to pray joyfully, meeting regularly with the Strets over the course of a summer. Then the Strets dies. So the pilgrim sets off to wandering again, taking with him only two new items, 
the Chotki and a copy of the Philokalia, his conversion now truly underway. Each time I read the Pilgrim's story, I'm reminded again the change of heart often starts with a line or a passage from Scripture. I'm also reminded that true conversion is painful, that it takes time, a lifetime, and that it can only occur if we occur if we answer our Lord's call to follow me. And once we answer the call, that we stay untrue to his teaching and work diligently each day of our life to follow the example he sets for us with his own life. St. Anthony, St. Mary of Egypt, and Evagrius teach us the same. I'm told that you like your speakers to leave you with a call to action. So I will leave you with a three-part call to action. I hope you will do all three, but if you can only do one, start there. Make a commitment to reading and reflecting on Scripture daily. Make a commitment to reading and reflecting on, if you're not doing it all ready, many of you who come to events like this surely are doing something or more like that. Uh, I encourage you to start tomorrow with Matthew 4, 111. Go back to that yourself. Meditate on it. And then go back to the beginning of Matthew and work your way through the New Testament. Then see whether you're called to go through the Psalms or go all the way back and work your way through the Old Testament. Uh, make a commitment to following our Lord's example by living a life of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Make a commitment, three, to nourishing this life through prayer, fasting, vigils, and spiritual reading. For your spiritual reading, read about the church fathers and read and reflect on their works. To become more familiar with the church uh, fathers, you might want to start with Benedict's collection Church Fathers from Clement of Rome to Augustine. He has two others that follow. This, so if you are inspired, read, read them as well. They are phenomenal. They're short. You could read one a day. They're the general audience he gave at one point, and they are magnificent. Read those. And you really get uh, uh, inspired. He has a wonderful book that follows that one up called The School for Prayer. So you can learn a lot about prayer from that one. Um, these books will really uh, inspire you, I believe. You might also consider starting with The Life of Antony and read it yourself. Uh, it's a beautiful book. Uh, it's not hard to read. You could actually read it probably in an afternoon, some Sunday afternoon, you know, or well, actually since Sunday, some, uh, a feast day, uh, maybe Wednesday or Friday, uh, a day when we're supposed to do some suffering, right? Another book I want to encourage you very much to read and reflect on is a work by St. Basil the Great. It's called On Christian Ethics. Uh, you can find a variety of versions of it. Uh, St. Vladimir Seminary Press, they are Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. It's okay. We, we can still get some of their works. Don't worry about it. It's, it's a beautiful translation. And what's great about this is he defines, St. Basil defines church teaching in the book in short statements. 80 short statements, then he has sub-statements and all that, but he defines the church teaching. It's like a catechism, but it's like the it's the, essentially the best catechism you'll ever experience in many ways. Um, not that the, the, the beautiful catechism that we had recently published, that's a, the, the, this, that, that catechism truly, I think, the one that, that was published several years ago, is truly a catechism for adults. Uh, it really is, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's one that once you're on the path is very helpful. Um, it's uh, it's just got so much into it. But this, this book will give you 
it, it just will summarize everything for you. And then the other part of it that's wonderful is each of those 80 points, he backs up with scripture. Short scripture passages. All of these are only usually about a paragraph long. So this is a great way to familiar yourself, familiarize yourself with scripture. And it would be a way for you to read scripture every single day simply by reading one, two, or three of these passages. It's, it would be a great way to go. Um, you will get a lifetime of reflection out of that book. Finally, you may wish to read Evagrius. And if you do, start with the Practicus and chapters on prayer. Um, they're very short. Uh, you can also read uh, two works by uh, a monk, a former Benedictine monk who's become Russian Orthodox, uh, Gabriel Bunji. Um, they're beautiful books. One is called Despondency. The other is called Dragon's Blood and Angel's Bread. Dragon's Blood, Anger. Angel's bre Bread, Meekness. Despondency deals with acedia. And it's a wonderful book. And another great book that's come out from Ignatius Press, uh, which is it's, it's phenomenal, is by Father Jean-Charles Nott called The Noonday Devil. What's really great about that work uh, is that it, he gives you Evagrius and really gives you a good understanding of Evagrius. And he shows you how Evagrius and St. Thomas Aquinas are very much in unison. But he takes you up through time and shows you how the idea of ascetia has changed, changed over time. And he talks about the pastoral life, he talks about the priestly life. But one of the great things he does in that book as well is he talks about the single life and the married life. So for those of you who are married and those of you who hope to be married, there's good material in there for you. Those of you who are single, good material in there for you as well. It's, it's a phenomenal book. I can't recommend it uh, highly, uh, uh, more highly. Um, and then let's say, uh, let's see what I say here. Okay, uh, keep in mind that we may not be able to attain the great heights of these saints we've talked about tonight, but we certainly can do more each day for our Lord who gave his life for us so that we might have life. And I think sometimes we forget that the, 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 the truth of Christianity is we receive in this life, life from Christ. When you're walking the other path, you're really a dead soul. And as a former agnostic atheist, I can testify to that. You are dead. You are a dead person when you are not really living this life. So I want to encourage you, and I will leave you with this wonderful quotation from Evagoras. Do you wish to pray? Then banish the things of this world. Have heaven as your homeland and live there constantly. Not in mere word, but in actions that imitate the angels and in a more godlike knowledge. Thank you very much for listening.